0: On this week's episode i am sitting with dr vincent herrenham in his cabin in cambridge of all places dr herrenham welcome to the native informant podcast i just want to get right into it do you want to tell people who you are and the type of research that you have been uncovering over the last couple of years
1: sarah thank you it's a pleasure to be on the podcast it's a pleasure to be here to meet each other finally in person we've had correspondences over email and, and linkedin Funnily enough, LinkedIn of all places, and uh, talking over the phone. So it's really great to have the opportunity to uh, speak to you. And In terms of who I am, I'm a criminologist by training, a uh, statistician as well. That's the sort of environment that I grew up around. That's my schooling. But I currently teach at the University of Cambridge, so I did a PhD here in criminology. And I'm sort of phasing out of the, of the academy now. I'm, I'm moving on to greener pastures, as it were. I wanted to start to unpack some
0: of the research that you had done regarding the sexual marketplace and your findings with how sort of men and women interact in terms of dating and then of course if they choose to to settle down find a a viable spouse uh, so to speak but I wanted to challenge those notions a little bit from a sort of Middle Eastern perspective because often at times when we find research it can be somewhat Eurocentric so do you want to give sort of an an overarching idea about the research that you've uncovered
1: absolutely so in terms of what i do i would say that i'm a skull of the culture wars Mm -hmm. in the sense that i'm looking at something that people you know obviously talk about in day-to-day it's very it's very present in the political conversation whether it be woke capitalism or the sexual marketplace dynamics you know political polarization but from my perspective i'm looking at it from a empirical vantage point or an empirical point of view. So taking something which is by virtue of the fact that it's all based on anecdotal evidence and battles over Twitter, anecdotal or lacking in empirical evidence. And I'm trying to bring the science to to these research topics. So applying techniques that I would if I were examining crime data, for example, or as an economist would apply when examining economic data. And one of the topics that I'm focused on specifically is, as you mentioned, sexual marketplace dynamics, so interactions between males and females in a romantic setting. And one of the things that I'm now looking at is how these dynamics between these individuals, so mating, dating, marrying, child rearing, that sort of thing, how these modern trends, how they'll affect crime rates and societal um, cohesion moving forward. But there's another interesting thing you mentioned there, and it's that you wanted to push back a bit on my writing and on the literature as it relates to a Middle Eastern point of view. And Mm -hmm. I would say that you're absolutely right to do so, because all the research that I've produced, none of it really touches on the Middle East, on that part of the world. From from my understanding, a lot of the research that's produced uh, by academics and by individuals writing on this topic, they don't actually look at the Middle East and the sort of topics there so or the trends there and we could have a conversation a larger conversation about how trends in the middle east and the west coalesce or if they don't
0: absolutely and i think what's really interesting you mentioned that a lot of the work whether it's empirical or uh, sort of anecdotal as such mm. but the sort of main point that really stuck out to me like a sore thumb was this idea of hypergamy mm. and how very much insular cultures tribal cultures arab cultures the idea of hypergamy is almost embedded in the fabric of our identity. Mm-hmm. Women tend to marry up and across, but not by a means of survival, but rather a means of carrying on either family lineage, tribal lineage, and usually arranged by either a suggested marriage or an arranged marriage. Mm. So. For those, first of all, who don't know what hypergamy is.
1: So hypergamy simply means marrying upwards. So marrying above one station or above one's, one's place within a dominance hierarchy. So the term dominance hierarchy is something that's used by Jordan Peterson to mean a realm of, of engagement or activity. So um, the education system. So if you're part of a university as I am, that is a dominance hierarchy. There are professors that are above me and there's a vice chancellor and you know administrative staff who are above certain professors. So that's a dominance hierarchy. So when we talk about dominance hierarchies and hypergamy in the sexual marketplace we're simply referring to the trend or the pattern in which women and some men marry above their station so in this case we have women marrying men that have a higher level of education than they do have a higher level of earnings than they do a social standing these sort of things hypergamy is a term that is used at least within the the setting of biology as it relates to sort of anthropology but um, the evolutionary sciences and a lot of researchers that have looked into this topic note that our species is hypergamic by virtue of our evolution how we came up right the primordial ooze as it were so women in that period of time so in atavistic age would have to rely on a man that had a lot of resources in order to provide and protect her in sort of, a, as I say, an atavistic setting. And we do see that in a modern day setting where again, security is required or is you know wanted on the part of a woman. So she'll marry a man that's financially stable in order to provide resources so that she's able to have that security and, and raise the children. And the, the point you raised there about hypergamy within the realm of the Middle East is very unique and different from the way that it is construed in the literature and in a, you know, ecological setting, the actual setting, the realm in which we engage with, very different because there is no familial tie in the West, I would say, when it comes to marrying into certain families or marrying certain individuals, right? There is no element of that, right? It's very much an individual thing that's done out of a woman or a man's volition. But from what you're describing to me, it's very different in the Middle East where who you are is fundamentally who you need to marry. Am I right in in assuming that?
0: I think it's both part and parcel, but I think in the Arab world, especially in the Gulf or the GCC countries, it's very much of several arguments. And one sort of tangent could be keeping the bloodline pure, wanting Mm. to keep it within the tribal lineage. Another avenue is to strengthen the ties and bonds between tribes. So certain families with certain ethnic backgrounds will marry within each other sure. or marry within each other's uh, city. What I find really interesting about the idea of hypergamy, it, it seems to have stemmed from a means for survival. Yes. Whilst in in modern or contemporary society, especially within the GCC, that, that sort of uh, pressing nature isn't as urgent no, as it, as it that's, was, before. that's,
1: that's exactly right. So th- there's a, there's sort of a phrase that a lot of individuals that study this, these ideas talk about or use, it's called, uh, ancient ideas in modern skulls. Okay. That is to say we have all these, you know, behaviors that we, we engage in on a daily basis that were sort of created and manufactured in an environmental setting, but we still practice them today in an environment where those stressors, those environmental stressors that would have existed 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago simply don't exist. It's very different because, again, you still have to brave certain trials and tribulations, that is, as a man, as a woman, sort of getting a good job and ensuring you're able to provide for your family. There is a level of achievement that's required, but the level of risk is not the same as it was 10,000 years ago. How does that relate to the dynamics that men and
0: women share in terms of dating. Because there was a study that you had discussed previously about agreeability and disagreeability mm. play a role in the way yes. dynamics are, yes, yes, are, yes, yes, yes. Are, are shifting.
1: That's a fantastic line of inquiry. So talking about the big five personality traits and, and agreeability or disagreeability being one of those big five personality traits. So this is simply the notion that individuals sort of stand up for themselves or are more inclined to stand up for themselves and kind of have things their way and what the literature indicates is that men on average are more disagreeable than women on average that is not to say that all men are more disagreeable than all women but what it is to say is that you know again on average men are more disagreeable you are going to have some women that are high in disagreeability relative to the average man and maybe even com- comparable or comparable to a high high disagreeability uh, man and the way that that is actually meted out in earnings is that Individuals who have a higher level of disagreeability or score higher on disagreeability, they typically make more money than people that have sort of a baseline standard. So there's one study that was conducted that found that when men had a Disagreeable disagreeability level that was one standard deviation higher than the average. They made something like ten thousand dollars more every single year. You know this point here around agreeability and disagreeability. It really does affect relationships. So the, the way the literature goes is that women that are more agreeable are more likely to find a partner than a women that are more disagreeable. It's a structural impediment mm. that's that's just built in there, and it certainly affects a type of person. But in this case, because men are more disagreeable on average than women, then yes, it does certainly affect them. I think the, you know, the, the, the great Jordan Peterson talks about this, or he's had lectures where he's spoken about uh, agreeable women not receiving promotions because they, or, or pay rises, for example, because they're, they're less willing to actually stand up for themselves and make an argument as to why they deserve a promotion or why they should get paid more. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, the average man in the workplace is, is more likely to do so. And that, that is one reason why he would advance in in his specific uh, occupation so it, it it is a good point so the, so the note to all women that are listening just basically ask for a promotion if you want to get one well, more or less <laughs> i mean i think that's just a general point we we have to make to to people i mean you know if there's an opportunity out there and you want it then you have to you have to raise your voice and, and say that you want the opportunity that you're deserving of some of, of something you have to make a case for yourself
0: True. When you were talking about in terms of relationships, there was a, a fascinating statistic that you had pointed out about study that was conducted by four major universities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the the numbers, if, if I'm not mistaken, that for every 16-point increase in a man's IQ, IQ. Right. he increases his prospects of getting married by 40? 40,
1: 40, 36%, 36% I believe, 36% 30, or 40%. We'll say within that, that range of 30 to
0: 40%. And then if a woman had the same increase
1: in her IQ level as the man, it would decrease her prospects by 40%. Exactly more. that. So so is that if a man is very intelligent, then he has a higher likelihood of, of getting married. And the opposite is true for a woman with a high IQ. And you know that strikes one as odd, but I think it, it more so represents The preferences of the genders. So women on average are more likely to prefer a man who is more educated than she is. So there's a study uh, examining Tinder and swipe rights. Mm -hmm. So whether or not a woman selects a man. And and men who have a master's degree, for example, are something like 50% to 80% more likely to receive a swipe right relative to a man with a bachelor's degree. And the way the literature is is meted out again is that there are two there are two characteristics that predict for attractiveness in a man so a woman's attraction to a man the first is economic earnings and the second is educational level or iq if, if you want to use that as a proxy mm-hmm. and those two things are not uncorrelated right so so your level of education does actually impact the amount of money you make so those two things go hand in hand so there was a, a general statistic that was
0: released a couple of years ago. There was a higher percentage of women graduating from university, yes. more so than men. Mm-hmm. And then also within higher education, it is most likely around 12% were more likely to do postgraduate's degree. And of that 12%,
1: the vast majority would be women. That's, that's interesting because we also see those trends across the West. So that particular point there that you've made around enrollment in a four-year uh, college and also graduation from a four-year college mm-hmm. and the pursuit of a, a postgraduate degree is also present in the west and i think that that is actually a transfer or a reversal in the trend where uh, men in the 1960s and prior or before 1968 were more of them were going to university or four-year u.s college for example and in 1968 that, that trend reversed where women were on top and that's actually trended upward since that point in time. So 35 million more women going to a four year U.S. college enrolling in a four year year U.S. college relative to men. So there is a, a, a reversal in the, the educational attainment of men and women. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest that it's not just individuals that are going to universities and post-secondary. It's also the case that girls are scoring higher than boys. In school, they're they're graduating at a higher rate. They're taking A levels at a higher rate. They're they're doing better in in the STEM subjects, right? In the sciences, biology, mathematics subjects, which traditionally they did not do as well as as men did. Men typically they're, they're, they're superior in those in those um in those subjects for a variety of different reasons. One being sort of brain chemistry, but uh, another point you're raising there, which is 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 a very important one, is how this affects dating prospects, and. The way, the best way to describe this or the best way to break this down would to be that we have a increasing cohort of highly educated women, but a decreasing cohort of equally educated men, meaning that there is a lot of, or there are a lot of women out there that are incredibly highly educated, incredibly brilliant, you know, well to do that don't have a partner at a, at an equal or higher level, which means that these women are perpetually single in a way, or they marry later on in life.
0: We have these kind of outliers where, you know, someone would say, well, I, you know, I did meet someone and it was very successful and it did happen. But the general statistics is that is that's just simply not the case. As a woman going for a high value man, you are aiming for top five percentile. Top one percent, actually. Top one percent. And that
1: individual is going to uh, be picking from the cream of the crop. Yes. where this particular notion has been meted out in uh, Tinder data where we have, again, a small percentage of men who are desired by the outsized proportion of the women on that app. The, the majority of guys on Tinder don't get any sort of attention, don't get any action. right? No one swipes right on them. The larger question we have to ask ourselves here, not just about solutions, we can talk about solutions. but The larger question we have to ask ourselves here is that what that means for society in the long term, where there is, a, in essence, a society with a large percentage of women that go on to not have a relationship, not have any children, are not in any sort of, you know, engage in sort of romantic dalliance long term with a man. And a society of men, maybe even more importantly than the single women, uh, a society of young men who are without a partner and are on their own and listless and have no ties to society because, you know, a lot of the criminological literature indicates that men who are single, so without families, without a wife, are the ones that are most likely to engage in violent crime. But in terms of solutions, I- I'm. I'm hesitant to offer any solutions for the simple reason that I don't think that there are solutions that we could implement at this point in time that would solve the problem. Because we have to keep in mind that this current trend, so the imbalance in the sexual marketplace, has been occurring really since the 1960s with the invention of the birth control pill. So to think that we would be able to reverse a trend that's been, what, seventy, you know, 60 to 70 years somewhat in the making is just hubris. These sort of things have to play out, right? They, 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 they naturally run a course
0: that's when the sort of sociocultural underbelly comes into play because you might be the top one percentile of men having... The top G, as it were. Yeah, the top G. But at the end of the day, you're still going to end up marrying whoever mother and father suggest to you. Yes. So in a way, man one might be frolicking the the, the deserts or the fields. He'll with, still
1: have to marry who his mother tells him. He will him still
0: to. be with woman one or woman two, it suggests this idea that monogamy is still very much foregrounded, at least in, in an Arab's perspective. When we have this kind of injection of of Western influence that collides with these cultural norms of values and traditions of Middle Eastern culture or Arab culture, you get this really strange kind of tug and war or the rise mm. of um, transactional dynamic. So what can you speak to that in terms of also
1: research and then sure. your own personal thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I think... I don't think you're inaccurate in talking about it purely in terms of transactional, but there is an increasing cohort of lonely men out there that are seeking romantic attention, seeking emotional connection, but can't find it in their local status hierarchies, let's say. And so they have to go to things like OnlyFans in order to find it. And they're willing to spend a lot of money hand over fist, to meet a woman that is interested in them or pretends to be interested in them. You
0: put the element of people within the Arab region, how there is no need for that type of transaction to even take place because there is that social stability there is that rootedness in culture and identity even those people that you might describe as running around simping for these women at some point or another they might actually get married they might actually set down settle down and reproduce they won't die off uh, as and i and i'm sure you've mentioned in in previous uh, discussions that i mean we have more female ancestors than we do male
1: ancestors right
0: but but they will eventually find a partner. Mm -hmm. So why do you think they would be still engaging in these types of interaction?
1: You know, these these modern technologies like pornography, like video games, it, it does mimic real life achievement in some way. So the sexual gratification you get from pornography tries to mirror the sexual gratification that you get from actual physical intimacy. So in essence, it's the thing, it's the appearance of the thing without the thing itself. And so it, it has a tendency, or at least in my opinion, has a tendency, and this is, there, I need to do more research on this, this is purely opinion, I'll say that for the audience. It has, an, it has a tendency of making men docile, in that you have a lot of men that are simply at home playing video games and watching porn that are not, that are not out there in the real world achieving these things. Talking to girls, you know, getting into relationships, starting a business, making money, uh, getting an education, that sort of thing. Because they have all that they need at the palm of their hands, in the form of an iPhone which streams porn or allows them to play Angry Birds.
0: So we've kind of shifted the gear more towards discussing how men are interacting in society, but I want to put the focus back on to women because I found it really interesting that you were saying how women who are financially successful climbing up the socioeconomic ladder are actually doing themselves a disservice when it comes to finding a partner (laughs) what do you think could be a potential solution outside the sort of framework of lowering their standards standards, because we didn't we didn't expand on that
1: well i wouldn't i wouldn't say that it has to be because i would never advise anyone to lower your standards i would say you would have to temper your expectations and you, you they wouldn't want that from the audience as well well, well yeah <laughs> I mean, of course but <laughs> the point being is that you have to you have to realize that the decisions that you make obviously have consequences and their implications for things you do that's that's obvious i'm not stating anything here that anyone doesn't know already but the larger point i'm trying to make here is that if you're a young woman um at a university and you're looking to, to, to go on to be postgraduate education and get a, a degree and, and go on to law school or whatever it is, you have to realize that you're free to do that and you should do that, right? You should, you should climb the ladder, but at the same time, it makes you less palatable in, in the dating marketplace because men are not, unfortunately, and it's, it's just a sad reality of the situation. You can't really describe it any, anything else or any anyhow else. Men are not really looking for that. And so you'd have to understand that the higher you climb socioeconomically, educationally, means you have less dating prospects in terms of the opposite sex, that being men. Because A, you're sitting atop of your own dominance hierarchy, whatever that might be. And it's very hard to find someone that is above you if you're sitting at at the top of your own dominance hierarchy. At the same point, you have to imagine that the men that, at, are at the top of that dominance hierarchy are not necessarily looking for a woman that is highly educated. That you know, men on average look for women that are young and fertile. That's just what the literature indicates. So you have that working against you as well. So, you know, again, you're at the top of your dominance hierarchy, but at the same time, you have a lot of younger women that are more palatable in the eyes of of men. All all of the research that I've been looking at, so the research around socioeconomics, so that is economic earnings, you know, employment, um, educational standards, graduation rates, uh, you know, um, enrollment, all point towards uh, women's domination uh, or dominance over men, mm-hmm. and this is a very recent thing. And you have to imagine that this is going to get more worse as time progresses, or the the gap between the sexes are going to increase. So we always talk about a, uh, a a pay gap between you know men and women. If you properly disaggregate the statistics in terms of looking at it in terms of hours worked and whether or not a woman has a child and and a variety of different things, you'll find that women on average make more money than men. So one particular study, or now it wasn't even a study, it was just a straight statistic from the Press Association here in the UK, found that um, women between the ages of 22 to 29 made on average 1,111 pounds more than men in that age demographic. And there's basically parity, parity in earnings between the sexes for women and men between the ages of 18 and 39. Above that age, you do see a difference where men make more money. But parity basically exists now in terms of earnings.
0: I wanted to shift the gear in terms of the way that you were describing men's expectations in in relationships and women's expectations. But I wanted to kind of dive deep into the idea of the dark triad Mm. and how um, women's expectations or interest in certain men... Come from the sort of the Holy Trinity. Ah, of, yes, of bad boys. Of bad boys. Yeah. So
1: we can first begin with the term dark triad. So within within the realm of psychology, dark triad refers to three psychological characteristics that make an individual bad or negative. So the three characteristics, or the three you know traits, are Machiavellianism. So fairly self explanatory. The manipulator, as it were. Uh, the second thing is psychopathy, high risk taking, and the third is is narcissism. Again, self-explanatory, likes to look at themselves in the mirror. So those three characteristics together is what creates the prototypical bad boy. And a lot of the literature does indicate that women are attracted to these types of individuals because it, it's not that they're attracted to psychopaths. They're not, it's not that they're attracted to, to narcissists. It's that these individuals have secondary characteristics among the big five personality traits that make them attractive. So individuals that are high in in psychopathy, for example, or high in narcissism, or even high in Machiavellianism, are also high in openness. They're they may be low or mid level in neuroticism. They're probably low in, in conscientiousness. They're incredibly creative people. And, you know, these individuals typically use more sexualized terms. You know, they they're they're more Blase in their conversational um, overtones in conversation, for example, they wear more flashy clothes. So by nature of these secondary characteristics, they're more attractive. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that, well, are those characteristics necessarily conducive to a long-term relationship? What would you say? Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) Even a short-term relationship. Okay. Well, there you go, right? You know, even a short-term relationship. So these individuals are dangerous, right? That's what makes them sexy but on the other side the, the dark gentleman is a term that i've created to represent the sort of unicorn right the the unity of contradictions is what i'm calling it so taking all of these dark triad characteristics all the bad boy characteristics and merging it with sort of the the dad or the or the the long-term catch right so the man that has or provides in spades parental invest, investment protection and and provision so if we merge those two we essentially get a unicorn we get the dark gentleman a man that is sort of Satisfies women's desire for a short-term dalliance, the bad boy, but also satisfies her desire for a long-term mate that can provide for her and her offspring. So that's essentially the dark gentleman, the unity of the two contradicting individuals: the the cad and the dad, or the Chad and the dad,
0: the Chad and the dad, chad or the the, dad. the Ahmed and the dad,
1: the but, Ahmed but, and the dad. That's a thing.
0: The Ahmed and the dad, but I've. Um, wait, wait,
1: wait! So Ahmed is the even the Middle the Eastern Arab. version, <laughs> the Arab <laughs>
0: version of of Chad. I mean, sure. I mean, usually it's like either Khaloud Hamoud or Aboud. So I'm just <laughs> gonna say
1: Khaloud, which is like Khalid. Uh, but yeah. um, I know Khalid actually. He from Saudi Arabia. He's a great guy. I'm sure. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he doesn't possess
0: any of the the,
1: the dark triad.
0: With Chad Chad is the person that women want to be with and yes. also the men want to men be men
1: want to be yes these people are are these individuals I should say are not are not the sort of individuals that can maintain a long-term relationship with with another person
0: okay so they don't maintain no, a relationship
1: I mean, no no they, they they have at least their ability to do so is far greater reduced relative to someone not high in each of these three traits
0: and what develops a person who becomes a dark gentleman?
1: Is it nature? Is it nurture? So dark triad or dark gentleman? Dark gentleman, dark because gen- it's the hybrid of. It's of- the hybrid. So I, it's 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 hard to say because I, again these individuals are unicorns. You're not going to find all these characteristics in in a lot of guys, right? It's a very small percentage, I would say, of individuals that fit this sort of archetype.
0: Really, I would, yes. beg, to, I would uh, beg to differ. Would you differ? You... Yes, because I think it's, it's very common in the Middle East because a lot of things that feed into those factors, mm. whether it's family lineage and socioeconomic status, those are all kind of like a given. So mm. in a way, it cushions that archetype from sure. the get-go.
1: So the, the point that you raise, I think is a good one. And I think it speaks to my ignorance as a Western researcher that has no experience doing research in, in, in this part of the world, that being the Middle East. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll cop to that and say, well, I have no explanation. I think like as a researcher and a scientist, I have to be able to state when I don't know something mm-hmm. or when something brushes up against my research that I simply cannot explain is that when it comes to the the dark triad characteristics they're individuals that are construed as, as being dangerous and mysterious right they're, they're fun in other words even though they're cool but but just because something is cool doesn't mean it's good for you so keeping up with the kardashians for example it's cool i don't think it's cool maybe people think it's cool just admit to everyone that you love it fine i love it <laughs> it's cool but is it good for me no because i could wa- i could be watching discovery channel which is not as cool but i still learn i still learn stuff right Unfortunately, one of the critiques, not even unfortunately, just, it's just a critique that I have of, of, you know, the Andrew Tates of the world and, and these sort of individuals that drive fast cars and do all these sort of things is that a part of what it means to be a man, in my opinion, is to grow up and have, have a family and have responsibilities in that, sort of se- in that sort of way. I'm not saying that Andrew Tate doesn't have, a, you know, a family that he takes care of. I'm sure he does. But the point I'm trying to raise here is that there is a cohort of these so-called high-value men that have no interest in taking on the responsibility of being a husband and a father. So they perpetually remain sort of Peter Pan bachelors. They're men that never grow up you
0: are making the argument that men never grow up and want to settle down and have children and then women are also becoming high flyers and high achievers the conclusion we're never is get married. <laughs> no, not that we're never going to get married but we are moving in complete opposite Different directions, directions. Right. and i wonder when we're going to kind of curve back and meet at an apex of sorts
1: when things get so bad that we have to reconvene and recall us.
0: and when do you think that might happen well
1: when there's blood in the streets and I think I know I'm serious. So I'm not I'm not trying to, to, to be to be controversial here or or just, you know, increase the views on the podcast. I would like to have as many views on the podcast. But the point being is that I think that's the that's the 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 path that we're heading towards is uh, extreme violence, high levels of crime, you know, social malaise, um, economic crisis you know, repli- um, birth replacement rates. We can talk about that as well. But all of these are born out of the current way or the, the, the way in which a se- sexual marketplace is currently structured. So I can speak to crime as a criminologist is that I mentioned before on the podcast that men who are single and do not have any sort of ties to our family are the ones that are most likely to engage in crime. You know, we see that all throughout history, but we see that at a macro level. So in China, for example, there's, um, there's a province called Hua Pei and this was in the 1500s i want to say where there was a massive famine in Huapay and the ratio to men and women was something like 126 men to every 100 women so there's a, a massive amount of, of women relative or men relative to women and what that meant was that these men were never going to get married right they they, they simply did not have enough women to get married to and the second thing is that there there was polygamy in play or Again, a small percentage of, of Chinese noblemen, something like 10% of them, accounted for an outsized proportion of the marriages, let's say 30%. I'm just pulling that number off the top of my head, but it, it, I think that's exactly what it was or something around that. And what happened as a result is that these excess of unmarried men engaged in band, bandit, um, banditry and pillaging and you know, burning and looting. So there's a high level of violent crime that, that was attributed to these men that didn't have a family structure to, you know, to, to sort of maintain we see this in china and parts of the east as well where china's one child policy in terms of all these young women dying there's something like 80 million chinese women that have died due to that uh, policy that's how that's having ramifications in in modern times where it, it's something like seven to eight percent or the seven to eight percent increase in um violent and property crimes in china is attributed to these men without a, a sexual partner or without a, a prospective wife to marry So these gender imbalances do have a massive effect on crime moving forward. And I think it's only a matter of time before we see similar trends in the West.
0: So I wanted to end on just a final note about how women, for all intents and purposes, are known as the sexual gatekeepers and Mm -hmm. the men are the sort of sexual protagonists. Can you expand on that?
1: So I think I'll go back to some of the anthropological evidence looking at this or some of the evolutionary evidence. So, So one thing you pointed out... At an earlier point in this podcast, was that we have more female ancestors than we do male ancestors. I think in the Neolithic age, it was something like seventeen women reproduce every one male. Oh wow! And I, that does point to again a power law distribution in, in mating. So there is obviously a, a element of polygyny there, or polygamy I should say. But the whole the whole point around that is that you know fundamentally, women will select the men that they want to mate with men are more lascivious in the sense that, you know, they, they can obviously reproduce with as many women as possible. Well, a woman can only have a child or, or be pregnant um, in, in one sort of go, right? She can have multiple pregnancies, yes, but it has to be with one man. Whereas a, a man can impregnate many women. So the woman must fundamentally choose, at least based on the anthropological evidence and some of the modern research, who she wants to settle down with or who she wants to have a child with. So in that sense, <laughs> women are the ones who decide uh, who to who gets to reproduce and who doesn't? Who gets to carry their genetic line into the next generation?
0: Everything that we've discussed in in this podcast, whether it's hypergamy or the sexual marketplace uh, in general, or the onlyfans or the escorts or whatnot, mm-hmm. basically, women have the majority of the power. They they just haven't recognized that they have the majority of the power. But in a way, we shouldn't allow for the women to be the sole bearers of the responsibility in order to step their game up in society. And the men need to be held accountable for the role that they play in these dynamics and the women have to be held accountable to a certain degree. But it seems to me like the women are pretty set. It's the men that has got to, that have to kind of come forward and, and, and do a bit more of the heavy lifting. What would the advice be for those who wish to to find a viable partner? And do you see that it's it's moving in a positive direction or is it more cyclical? Like we have to get re... Like society has to go really, really bad before we start to see the
1: light. Yeah, I think... So I'll, I'll handle the second point first, which is you know where we're headed. And I'll, I'll handle the first point or the first point after that, which is what people should be doing. So the second point, I think a lot of this is cyclical. So I've been looking at research and, and this is actually you know, in relation to a new paper I'm writing that'll be published in Colette, hopefully very soon. Um, on this specific topic of of where sexual marketplace dynamics takes us in the long term, and I've been doing research looking at societal uh, or civilizational collapse, and one of the things that's often mentioned by the Arnold Toynbees of the world or the the Brian Ward Porkins, so these guys have written on the fall and the rise and fall of ancient Rome, for example, they say that societal collapse is cyclical. You reach a Zenith of greatness and you reach a low point and it kind of starts over again, things will get worse. And then we'll say, well, this is bad. We have to sort of change course. And we'll eventually do that. I hope on the first point, what do people do to make themselves selves more palatable in the sexual marketplace being what it is? I think the answer there's probably multiple answers to this question. So I'll give, I'll probably give three bits of advice. The first is work on yourself. Work on yourself, right? Become a better person than you were yesterday. Clean your room, as a great man once said. Clean your room, whoever that could be. Who could that be? Who could that be, the great JPB. So clean your room would be the first advice I would give you. The second advice I would give you is come to the realization that the world owes you nothing. Okay? You are an individual operating in this world. You're autonomous. Your decisions, your actions have consequences. You are owed nothing from anyone. You don't deserve a Bugatti. You don't deserve to have a ten out of ten model. Those are things you earn, right? So again, temper your expectations. And the third thing I would say is that don't take this stuff so seriously. You know, be open to to options, and you know, you know, put yourself out there, but but don't put yourself out there so much that you get hurt. This, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm high in conscientiousness, as uh, as Jordan Peterson would probably say. He did actually say that to me once. I, I was very I was very chuffed about that. Amazing. They also said I was high in describility, but hey, what are you going to do? I would just like to, to thank you for the opportunity to come onto your podcast and have a conversation, a free-flowing conversation like this one is a very rare one, um, one where you can share whatever it is that you, you, you think on a certain topic. So I, I, I do hope we can have a conversation again in the future, uh, perhaps uh, in, in South Beach, you know, maybe giving a little hint there to the audience about uh, future plans of mine. But let's do that in the future. Um, in terms of final messages look, I just say to the audience, again, have an open mind about things. You know, you have ideas about how the world operates, but take into consideration new evidence and change your mind as a result or don't change your mind as a result. Be open-minded.
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much, Dr. Haranan for taking some time for this podcast. And for those of you who are listening, please like, subscribe, hit the notification bell
1: on all platforms, and we'll see you next time. Bye. See ya.